as you probably know, early Wednesday morning, America selected Donald Trump as our 45th president of the United States. Donald Trump will be the leader of this country for the next four years. And although many evangelicals would not condone all of his past, whether in the far past or the recent past behavior, it seems that for now, this is to some degree an act of mercy from God. Now, let's not be fooled. It's without doubt that our country as a whole has departed from the Christian values which it once held, and not that this was a Christian nation or rooted on Christian origins by any means, but the law of the land has generally aligned with our beliefs, has it not? Now, however, in accordance with the end of Romans 1, if you just read that passage, here's what we see about our nation from that passage. We have indulged in the lusts of our heart, We have exchanged the natural for the unnatural when it comes to marriage and homosexuality. We're confusing genders, and overall we have a depraved mind as a country. And this means that as a nation, we are coming under, if not already under, the judgment hand of God. The last two years have seen unprecedented legislation passed that openly violates the Word of God, and likewise, unprecedented persecution of Christians in the United States. I do personally believe that with the swinging trends of liberalism, even the Republican Party, that end with even within the Republican Party, that we will see more severe persecution in the coming years, probably within our lifetime. However, for now, the moral decay and Christian opposition may have been halted for a moment. A few of the holes have been clogged, we might say. 1 Timothy 2 calls us to pray for those in authority that we might live peaceable and quiet lives, and God seems to have answered that prayer for now by way of prolonging uh, religious liberties uh, through Republican values. Now, The Supreme Court justices that are going to be appointed uh, are going to be Republican, most likely. And this isn't a political talk, but I do just want to update you with a few things from current events. Uh, Taxpayer dollars are not going to go toward abortion. Uh, Aggression toward the church's teaching and lack of tolerance will be slowed, although it will still be there. However, and here's where I want to get, with the election of either of these atypical candidates, the question still faces the church whether we're facing a Democratic House, Senate, and presidential office, or Republican, all of us are wondering, what is the church's relationship to government, particularly when you have an atypical candidate who wears red? Even with President-elect Trump in office, there are things, and probably likely will be more, that we do not support. Do I have to go into that detail on that? I don't think so, right? We would all say there are things that we are skeptical about. So what should our stance be when it comes to paying taxes and submitting to a government that we don't agree with in certain areas? Further, what if in four years from now, tides do turn and the Democrats sweep uh, the House, the Senate, and the presidential office, and the church is again placed on the hot seat and attacked for their narrow-minded views? What if we're persecuted for biblical views on things like marriage and abortion and gender identification? These are real things that are coming our way. How should the church respond then to the government? And what's incredible, guys, about this week's hard saying is that Jesus powerfully addresses both scenarios and really any scenario of government uh, stance with the church, whether we're in peace or in persecution. As we will see, Jesus hits the matter of church and state right on the head and addresses how the Christian should view and respond to human government and to God. And so our passage of consideration is in Matthew 22, but I want to get a running start as we head there in this controversial topic this evening. Matthew 21, just to kind of get a running start, is Tuesday of Passion Week. And in Matthew 21, verse 23, it says, When he, Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? So Jesus is asked this question about his authority, and he responds with a killer question uh, in verse 25. He says, the baptism of John was from what source, from heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, And then they go on to debate and talk about why either answer was going to be difficult. 
Now, what's funny is, is in the midst of this question, they kind of convene together. Here's the scenario, guys. Jesus has asked this question. He asked the question in return. They get together. They put their heads together and say, okay, okay. And they come back and look at the brilliant scholarly answer they give in verse 27. Answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. Right? They had no idea how to answer this question. They knew they were stuck. And even counseling together, they had no idea how to answer this question. And so Jesus, having them in a place where they know they're stuck, is now going to launch in to three parables and really exhortation to these guys and teaching to these guys. These three parables, first, the parable of the two sons in verses 28 through 32. And really the point of the parable of the two sons is this. The will of God is to believe in the son. That's the point of that parable. Then he launches into the parable of the landowner. And the parable of the landowner can be summarized by Jesus hitting on a few big concepts. First, Jesus is the Messiah. Second, that he would die. Third, that the Pharisees who were rejecting, who were rejecting him are the ones who would put him to death. Jesus is revealing all this through parable to them. And then he goes into a third parable, which is the parable of the marriage feast. And the point of the parable of the marriage feast is is really a final appeal to the Pharisees to come and dine with the king. He's asking them to come and dine with God. The offer's there, but they have to come on his terms. They have to come clothed in the righteousness of the Son, wearing the robes of the Son, Jesus Christ, by trusting in him. This is what Jesus is teaching to the Pharisees at this point. And really, following up on this launches us into our text for this evening. That's the background. Parable of the marriage feast ends in 14, and I want to pick up in verse 15 by looking at the plot of the Pharisees before we get to this hard saying that's going to address church and state. So in verse 15, we see their plot being laid out. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And then in 16, it says, And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now again, this is flowing out of these three parables, and this is really further evidence, guys, that the Pharisees had not heard a word that Jesus said. They had not responded to anything. Earlier in, in chapter 21, we see that in, after the second parable, that they respond with hardness of heart, and they wanted to seize him, but they didn't, and then Jesus just keeps going. And now here, we see again their hardness of heart coming off of this appeal to come and dine with the Master the first thing they want to do is trap him that they might eventually kill him. They hadn't responded to a bit of his teaching. Instead, we see that their plan was to trip him up by saying something that could be used against him. And so it says in verse 15, they plotted together or they conspired together. They counseled together and they had one goal in mind and it was this, get rid of Jesus. They wanted to eliminate Jesus from the scene. And I just want to point out, this was an evil scheme. This was not a small deal. This was a very wicked and evil scheme. So much so that in verse 18, Jesus himself recognized, it says, their malice, which malice is evilness or wickedness. And in fact, get this, they so wanted Jesus dead. These Pharisees so wanted Jesus dead, they didn't care who they had to form allegiances with in order to accomplish this goal. Later on, we'd see the Pharisees team up with the Sadducees, which was another group of religious people. Just, and typically, they didn't like one another, and they teamed up just to get Jesus. And here, it says that they team up with the Herodians. Okay, Now, why is that significant? I'm going to define these two groups of people for us quickly. The Herodians were a group of, uh, from the family of Herod Antipas, and Herod Antipas was the ruler of Galilee under Caesar's rule. He ruled, like you could say, a county or a large region. And these Herodians were from Herod's family and from his inner circle. And so it's from this ruling office that these representatives of Herod come. Now, you, we need to understand a little bit of the context here. Rome ruled Israel at the time, right? Rome ruled Israel. They had implemented tax on every subjugated nation within the Roman Empire, and Israel was one of these nations. So the nation of Israel did not have their own political uh, freedom. They were ruled by Rome. Now, because of this, we know that the Herodians, coming from Herod, who was part of Caesar's house, obviously we're in favor of tax, right? And here's why this is interesting is because the Pharisees were Israelites. They were Jews. They were of the nation of Israel. They, along with the rest of the Jews, hated Rome. 
They would have hated the Herodians. They hated Caesar. They hated anything Roman. And they definitely hated the poll tax, as we'll see in a little bit. And yet, they team up in order to catch Jesus. They team up in order to trap Jesus. More than that, we know that they didn't just want to trap him. Luke 13 tells us that Herod wanted Jesus dead. Herod himself wanted Jesus dead. We know the Pharisees wanted him dead because eventually, in three days from now, they would get their way and he would be dead. And so they set their differences aside in order to trap him and ruin him. And the parallel passage in Luke 20 says that they wanted to hand him over to the authorities in order to have him killed. That's the intent of this wicked plan. And you know, it it reminded me of this proverb, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? And just a, a 21st century example, when the Grizzlies play Eastern Washington, who do we root for? Right? We're breaking out our red and black. We don't like Eastern Washington when they're playing the Bobcats. Right? But when the Eastern Washington goes and plays the Grizzlies, hey, I'm, I'm an Eagles fan at that point. I'm rooting for Eastern Washington with my red and black. Yeah, there we go. You guys get the point. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. This example is so true here. These Pharisees and Herodians did not like each other, and yet they had one common goal in mind, so they unite together in order to get Jesus. Now, here's another interesting point. Just the presence of the Herodians in this conversation would have raised the stakes immensely. And I just want to give an illustration and you to think about this for a moment. Imagine you're at the mall, and you've got 12 of your followers. Let's say they're junior high kids. That's about all we could get to follow, right? You've got 12 junior high kids following you around the mall. And, uh, and you stop over by Orange Julius, and you begin to teach them truths about life. And as you're teaching this profound knowledge, there's passerbyers who are stopping and listening in on what you have to say. And suddenly, some men from down the hall begin beelining it right to you. They're in full suits. They're very official. Maybe they've got some handcuffs here or, or something, that's a, a gun, maybe a beaten stick. That, you know, they're coming for you. And they come in, and in the midst of your teaching, they ask you a question that is a hard question that's either going to lose your following. These junior high kids are going to disown you if you answer one way, or they're going to persecute you and throw you in jail and maybe kill you. Okay? They ask you a question, and you've got to answer on the spot. You see how these guys entering the situation, immediately, as they're walking towards you, you're already getting nervous. You're like, oh, man, what? who are these guys? Why are they coming over here? I'm just trying to minister to these 12-year-olds, right? <laughs> you see the scenario. Guys, I want you to imagine this, though. Jesus is in the temple. He's teaching his disciples. The, the, the scribes and Pharisees enter, interrupt his teaching, and ask him this hard question. Oh, and by the way, the Herodians are there. There's a little bit of pressure on what's about to go down here. This is an intense scenario. Now, before we get into the question that they ask, I want to point out one more thing. Look at verse 16. The Pharisees are the subject here, and it says, they sent their disciples to him. Now, isn't it interesting that the Pharisees themselves didn't go? And and I believe this points again to the deception of the whole scenario. They are trying to deceive Jesus. They're trying to trick him, to trip him up. So they send their disciples. Why? Well, their disciples, number one, he probably wouldn't recognize. And number two, they could more easily pose as as an innocent or honest questioner, right? He would know the Pharisees right away and call them out. But maybe their disciples, he would take for granted and think, oh, this person's probably innocent, And so they send their disciples with the Pharisees. And look at what they say in verse 16. They say, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Guys, don't let this phrase fool you. Don't let it trick you as they're trying to trick Jesus. This is flattery in disguise, right? It's flattery in disguise. They are buttering him up with four phony affirmations. Yes, they are true. And here's what's ironic about this. Let me walk through these affirmations quickly. Number one, they call him teacher. Therefore, they they affirm the authority of his teaching. Number two, they say, we know that you are truthful, affirming his integrity of character. Three, they say, you teach the way of God. In other words, they're affirming the truthfulness of his message. And then they say, and you're not swayed by others, affirming the fact that he was not a people pleaser. 
And here's the irony of this whole situation. If they actually believed all of these things, then they would know better than to try to sucker him in to giving an unwise answer based on the pressure of an audience. And further, if they actually believed what they had just said, then they would not be conspiring to trap him, would they? They would be on their knees worshiping him. They have affirmed Jesus in all of these ways, and yet they don't believe it. It's a trap, as the Star Wars guy would say, right? It's a trap. So what type of guys are these? Well, they're the type of guys that Psalm 55 describes, whose speech are smoother than butter, whose heart was war, whose words are softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. These were these type of men. They were hypocrites. They were smooth talkers. They were liars. And that's important to understand because Jesus' response is, uh, is kind of shocking. Now, they come to him and they're going to ask him a question. So before they ask him a question, they're buttering him up, or they think they are. And so they affirm these four truths. And then uh, just the very fact that they're going to ask him a question was yet another form of flattery. Asking someone a question showed humility and that you had something to learn from them. It was a way of coming to a rabbi and saying, we want to know what you think about this. So they presumed that due to their flattery, Jesus would blurt out something unguarded and they could use it against him. And so in verse 17, here's the question. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? So what they're asking, guys, is this. They're asking Jesus if poll tax accords with God's law, accords with God's law as Jesus understood it. That's what they want to know. They want to know his opinion of God's law pertaining to poll tax. And I think it's important that we understand what in the world a poll tax is. Well, just a quick little historical background. In this day, Rome had imposed three taxes, three types of taxes on the nation of Israel. The first was a customs tax or a ground tax. And that was as you traveled, one-tenth of your grain or one-fifth of your oil and wine would be given to the government. They had an income tax, which was only 1%. And then there was a poll tax. And a poll tax was a just because tax. It was given to any male, 14 to 65, or any female, 12 to 65. Now, working back through these real quick, the income tax wasn't really enough to get worked up about. It's 1%. The customs tax, at least you still got to go where you were headed, and you still got the majority of your produce, whatever it was they were taxing you on. But here's the thing with the poll tax. The poll tax, (laughs) there wasn't any benefit. And you can almost understand why people get worked up about this. The money went straight from the Jewish pockets right to the Roman government so that Rome could continue to rule them. The poll tax was, get this, the ultimate mark of subjection from one nation to another. There was no reason behind it. It was just saying, we're going to tax you because we can, because we have the power to do so. So really, if you were a Jew, you may be thinking, I can't stand these stinking Romans. Get them out of here. Kill them. Make them leave. And you're telling me we're paying tax so that they can continue to rule us? That's what the mindset of the Jew would have been. We're paying them money so they can continue to rule us and take away our freedom. Well, in AD 6, a man got fed up with this named Judas of Galilee, and he led a revolt during this time. And here was his reasoning. He wanted to be devoted to Yahweh alone as God and king. Great motive, right? It is. And yet, what happened? Well, Rome mercilessly massacred him and his tiny revolt. And just to send a message, they crucified them and hung them outside the city gates in the countryside as a message to the rest of the Jews. This is the type of scenario we're dealing with. This is the background regarding this poll tax and really the extent and the weight of this question. Should we pay poll tax or not? Now, in asking this question, these Herodians and uh, Pharisee disciples, they were assuming it was a yes-no question. And here's the trickery of this question. If Jesus said, yes, pay the poll tax to Caesar, then the disciples of the Pharisees would report it to the Pharisees, who would then go and ruin Jesus' reputation among the Jews. Jesus came to save the Jews. He came to minister to the Jews, and yet he would lose his following immediately. Furthermore, they probably could have uh, rallied up the Israeli activists and likely had him killed under Israeli law. So the stakes are high if he says yes. If he says no, 
Don't pay the poll tax to Caesar. While the Herodians who had come along are right there on behalf of Herod, on behalf of Caesar, would have him arrested and killed immediately. So it's a, it's a bit of a trickery, tricky spot. Yes and no are both wrong answers. He's either going to advocate for revolution against Rome or for collaboration with it. So how is he going to get out of this one? If you just stop right there, what's Jesus going to do to find his way out of this difficult question? Well, here we get to the response of Jesus. There's really two big chunks to this text. There's the plan by the Pharisees, and then there's the response of Jesus. And starting in verse 18, before we get there, I want to set the stage one more time. You're in the mall. You got your 12 disciples. You got some followers who are just stopping by. The officials are coming up. They've asked you the question. It's a hard question. You want to keep your followers and you don't want them to kill you, but you also don't want these other official guys to kill you. And you begin to sweat and you begin to think, what am I going to do? And, uh, and there's probably some fear of man going on and some, uh, some uh, intrepidation. Uh, okay, you're in the scene. And here we go. What's Jesus going to say? Verse 18. But Jesus perceived their malice and said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Guys, seriously, is there any timidness or fear of man in Jesus' answer here? Not a bit. Not a bit. In fact, just the opposite. Sensing their malice, he shows perfect boldness and courage in confronting these Pharisees. He puts it right back in their lap. And perhaps it's in light of their own confession that they just made about his truthfulness and integrity. They had, after all, just confessed that Jesus was true in what he said, true in who he was, teaching truth about God and not fearing man, and now they're putting him to a test? He could just turn that right, right back around on them. He knew these people, though, friends. Jesus knew these people. He knew their hearts, and therefore he confronts them on the spot about their hypocrisy. Later on in chapter 23, the woe to you chapter, he would say this to the scribes and Pharisees. He said, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. He would call the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful outwardly, but inwardly are dead man's bones. Jesus knew these kind of men. Therefore, he stops them right in their tracks to give them and I believe this. I still believe Jesus' heart was this. He gave them one last opportunity to examine themselves. He wasn't just being a jerk, but he's calling out their hypocrisy on the spot. Guys, you just affirmed this. Now you're testing me? Do you really believe what you just said? And of course they didn't. Now, after this rebuke, Jesus is going to give one of the best illustrations you'll ever see. He's going to answer their question, and then he's going to move into teaching. And in order to answer their question, he's going to use an illustration. Look at verse 19. You've got to see this, because this is going to all come back to the introduction. All that is going to be wonderful. Look at verse 19. Show me the coin used for the poll tax, and they brought him a denarius. Now, what's a denarius? A denarius was a silver coin equivalent to one day's wage, one day's worth of working. And on one side of the coin was an image of Tiberius Caesar with the Latin inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, who was his father. Now, on the other side was a picture of the Roman goddess of peace and a Latin inscription which said high priest, which was also in reference to Caesar. So here's what you need to know is that this Caesar, Tiberius, and Caesars before had actually claimed divinity. They had claimed to be of God. They had claimed divine nature. And really two times on this coin alone does it affirm that son of the divine Augustus, and the high priest. And yet, this coin would have been common currency for the Jews, right? They're a subjugated nation. They're under the rule of Rome. And so he, he has them get this coin, and they bring it. And then look at 20. He said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? <laughs> right? He's referring to the image of Caesar. And he asks a very rhetorical, easy, simple question. This was not a hard question. Everyone would have known it. In fact, it would have been one of those questions when you're sitting at a Bible study that someone asks that's too easy to answer, that no one answers, and then you got 10 seconds of awkward pause, right? This is how easy this question was to answer. Okay, here's the coin. You all know it. Whose image is this, right? And yet what's interesting to me is that they answer it. I'll get into that in a second, but uh, <clears throat> look at verse 21. 
They said to him, Caesar's. And then he said to them, and here we go, friends. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And now we get to the point of this passage. By asking them who was on the coin that was used to pay the poll tax, here's what Jesus is doing. He is leading them down the right train of thinking just like a parent would a child. He's drawing them in to the answer that they know will be true by the end. You see, from the Pharisees' point of view, I wonder if their quick response in verse 21 was due to the fact that Augustus uh, and Caesar after him, there's Augustus and there's Tiberius, that both of them had claimed to be God. And I wonder if they thought that he was going to uh, try to denounce them as a false god or a false worshiper. Caesar had, had demanded worship politically and religiously. And I wonder if they thought, okay, here we go. We're going to get Jesus. Whose image is this? Oh, it's Caesar's. And they're anticipating uh, trapping Jesus all the more. I can't say for sure, but that's my conjecture. And so it's ironic that Jesus and Caesar both claim to be the son of God. And yet, does Jesus say, does he denounce him as a false worshiper? Does he say, uh, stop worshiping this guy. Uh, don't, don't use this money. Uh, don't have an image, right? Which were, was illegal to have an image. No, he doesn't. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Well, just to start with, here's one thing this answer would have done. It would have eliminated the threat from the Herodians, right? They, they no longer had any area to condemn him with. He said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. In other words, pay the tax. Pay the poll tax. But here's what's most interesting about this uh, response. In verse 17, I want you to look. He says, is it lawful? They're asking him the question. Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar? This word for give is the original Greek word didomi. Very simple word. Give, pay, render, however you want to translate it. Here's the interesting thing. In verse 21, Jesus does not use the same word. He uses the word apodidomi, which means rather than just give, it means to give back. Or literally, get this, to restore to the original possessor. It would have been way more simple for him to use the same word. He doesn't do that. It's, it means to restore to the original possessor. And here's the significance of this. In answering this difficult question, Jesus is essentially saying that as a citizen of a certain government, you owe them what they ask. If, Caesar's, if it's Caesar's coin, which he did make it and distributed it for us to use or for them to use, then give it back to him when he asks for it. And so he says, simply, give it back to Caesar. Now, granted, I, I want to be sympathetic for a moment. The situation for Israel was not ideal. They were oppressed by the Roman government. They weren't free. But you know what? Here's the other side of this coin. Being, <laughs> yeah, funny. <laughs> Punny. Being under Roman rule was not all that bad. And here's why. The Roman Empire provided water, sanitation, roads, law and order, police protection. The Roman Empire provided great architecture and agriculture and education. The Roman Empire provided peace and protection from crime and other foreign countries. And all they were asking in return was one day's wages. And so Jesus says, look, the money that you have came from Rome and there's all these benefits anyways. Just give it back to them. Just give it back. And here's the lesson for us, friends, just to pause for a moment. We also are called to give back to the government, right? And just as an illustration to uh, bring us to today, who is on the front of this $1 bill? George Washington. And what does it say right across the top? It says the United States of America. How about on this $20 bill? Anyone know who's on the $20 bill? Andrew Jackson. Oh, and what does it say right across the top? Oh, the United States of America. Friends, here's the point. We are under the government of the United States. They have given us currency to use, and yet we also are called to pay taxes. We are called, and we're going to get to this later, to submit to our government. Romans 13, 6 commands us to pay taxes. Did you know that? The Bible says pay your taxes. It actually says that in Romans 13, 6. Furthermore, get this. Jesus doesn't make a single qualification for regarding the state of the government. He doesn't say, as long as you're in a democracy, then pay taxes. But if you're in a monarchy, don't pay taxes. 
He says, whatever government you're in, submit to that government, pay taxes. Think about this. This same government that Jesus is advocating to pay taxes to would nail him to a cross three days later. And yet Jesus' followers would pay the money they would pay for that cross. There's some irony. Here's the principle. Whatever government God has given to rule over us, we are to have respect for it and submit to it as much as we can. We shouldn't have a feeling of self-entitlement. And I thought this quote by one commentator was really helpful. He said this. He said, in If in an age of pagan despotism and open persecution of the church, believers were obligated to pay taxes, how much more obligated are modern Christians who live in free and democratic societies? Regardless of the seemingly spiritual reasons that may be proposed for resisting the payment of taxes, there are none that the Lord recognizes. To argue that paying taxes to a worldly humanistic government is ungodly and unjustified is spurious and contradicts what God himself says on the subject. Jesus calls us to pay taxes, so we pay taxes for the glory of God. Now, this is not a talk on taxes. That's a little subpoint, and it's just for free. Now, moving on, there's more in this passage, and I don't even think we've got to the main point yet. He's just answered their question. But as Jesus often does, he answers the question and then he flips it around and uses it for a wonderful teaching opportunity. He moves what I believe to the primary lesson of this passage, and that's when he says these words, render unto God what is God's. Render unto God what is God's. And this right here would have eliminated the threat of the Pharisees, right? He's successfully now squashed the Herodians, squashed the Pharisees, and now he's going to teach his point. He says, render to God's what is God's. And here's the beautiful contrast that he draws. And I want you to, to track with me for a moment here. We render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and we render to God what is God's. And while the silver coin bore the image of Caesar... I think the parallel must be carried over in the comparison because it's way too blatant for Jesus to have accidentally stumbled onto this. Let me ask you this question. When a Jewish listener heard the word image, where would their mind have gone? Right? He says, he gets the coin, he says, whose image is this? Jesus is drawing a contrast, and here's the contrast. The things which belong to Caesar Give back to Caesar. The things which belong to God, give back to God. And here we go. The things which bear the image of Caesar, go to Caesar. And the things which bear the image of God, they go back to God. And friends, what bears the image of God? We bear the image of God. You and me. Genesis 1.27, we have been made in the image of God right? God has made us in his likeness. We are, in a sense, contain the imprint of God as the pinnacle of his creation. Therefore, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, we render unto God our very lives. In light of the context of the previous parables, Jesus revealed that this could only be, only be accomplished through embracing him. We need him. That's already established. And yet here he's teaching our heart and soul, our very person must be given back, same word, apodidomi, given back to God because God is the one who gave us life in the first place. And I believe this was abundantly clear to the original audience. Why? Look at verse 22. They don't need any clarification. They're not asking further questions. Look at 22. Hearing this, they were amazed and leaving him, they went away. They didn't seize him. They didn't stone him. They didn't even ask him a further question. It was clear, and they were amazed. We owe our greatest allegiance, that of our hearts and our souls, to God. Now, I want to intro into some conclusions here. The fact that this was a monumental statement for the rest of history to follow is highlighted by the fact that Israel was on the verge of a new dispensation as a nation. And here's what I mean. They were no longer a theocracy. The government was no longer God's government run by God's people. Now they were the people of God and there was the government, right? Very much so different parties. And I think we can relate as a nation Although most of our founding fathers were not Christian, many in our culture have felt that we historically have been a Christian nation. And this is true uh, to some degree. At least there is a sense in which there are many churches and institutions that call themselves Christian in this country. 
And perhaps it's due to the uh, religious freedoms that we've had here, but I just want to say this. This country has been a wonderful platform for the gospel, not just in-house, but even beyond our borders. Friends, we would be foolish to say that many, many people have not been saved in the U.S. They have. Lots of people have been saved. In fact, most of us have probably been saved here in the U.S. if you're saved, right? That's, I mean, it, it, it has been, in a sense, a Christian nation. But although our government has not been a theocracy, and although for the most part it's been in line with many of, the, uh, of our standards, like moral you know, standards on marriage and abortion and these kind of things, I think we're entering into uncharted territories as well. I think just like Israel went through a big transition when they lost control of their own government and then Jesus addresses them, I think Jesus' words here are extremely pertinent for where we're at today as a nation. We are gradually moving away from a government that agrees with the moral standards of the church. And already now, we're at times seeing ourselves facing opposition from the government, standing in direct opposition to the government. And so as we begin to close, I want to just draw some conclusions from this passage. And there's just four of them I want to point out. And I want to talk about the relationship between the church and the state from this passage. Here's the first point that I think we need to consider, is that God is in control of the church and all governments. God is in control of the church and all governments. Every nation, every leader along the way has risen and fallen because God has ordained it. Let me read a couple passages. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6. O Lord, you rule over all kingdoms of the nations. Daniel 4, 17. The Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. Isaiah 40, verse 23 and 24. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, then he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlpool sweeps them away like chaff. Proverbs 21, verse 2. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. The nations and the leaders of nations are under God's complete control. Do you believe that? In light of our election, do you believe that? Now, not only are the nations and the rulers of these nations uh, under God's control, but even the government themselves are under God's control. Listen to Romans 13. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. In other words, here's the point of this passage. If God has established it, then to disobey it and to fail to show proper respect to it is to fail to show proper respect to God himself. He has appointed every governmental system, every leader, every nation, every government. And that passage continues. It says this, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good and you will receive praise from the same. For it, here's the key, for it is a minister of God to you for good. What is the it that is a minister of God for good? It's the government. It's the government which God has in place. Paul's statement here is inclusive of all governments, but specifically in his context, he's talking about the Roman government. The Roman government was God's servant for good. Verse 4 says, it is a minister of God and an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So both governments and leaders and nations, all of these three are not only allowed by God, but they are specifically ordained by God. He is in control of every human government, every leader, and every nation. And in light of this, in light of Tuesday's election, we just have, I mean, I'm going to say this very plainly. God ordained Donald Trump as our 45th president. He did. From before time began, he ordained it. Now, God's in control of government, but that's not the only institution that he has going. What's the other institution? Well, he's got the church, right? Matthew 18, Jesus said this, for I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Scripture everywhere affirms that Jesus is the head of the church. So God is 
judging, and here's the point here, God will judge the leaders of the church. He will judge the leaders of the government, different tasks, different organizations, and yet he is sovereignly in control of both. He works the the nations how he wants. He works the churches how he wants. God is the executive director and the founder of both the church and the state. Therefore, we can take a deep breath. We can be at peace. God, he's, he's got it. God's got this, right? Here's the second point. We are called then to submit to the government. So here's the thing. We have political and we have spiritual responsibility. As a real Christian, and if you want to be an excelling Christian, then we must be a good citizen of both heaven and earth. There's a state and there's a church. And here's the difference. The church's task is to preach the gospel, to administer the ordinances, baptism and communion, to nurture souls of its members, and overall to, ke- to care for spiritual matters. The state's task is completely different. It's to order society, to raise taxes, to govern business and society, to maintain a standing army, to protect life and property. The state has special privileges that the church doesn't and vice versa. For example, in Romans 13, the state is given the authority of the sword which means the ability to carry out judgment physically. The church doesn't have that responsibility. But both have their place, and both come from God. Now, regarding the government and our relationship to it, we are called to submit to the government. And I just want to survey Romans 13 real quick, and you just listen for things that have to do with submission and our stance to those in authority. Romans 13.1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. There we go, right? Pretty straightforward. I'll keep going. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Verse 5, therefore, it's necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. Verse 6, for because of this, you also pay taxes. There's the command. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. So God calls even these governing authorities or rulers servants of him. Verse 7, render to all what is due to them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. And I just want to throw in 1 Peter 2 because it's so good. It says this, verse 13, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. What's he talking about? Whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. You want to know the will of God for your life? Well, one aspect of the will of God for your life is to submit to the government. There's no way around this biblically, friends. That is the mandate for a Christian is to not just submit to it, but to joyfully submit to it to be a model of submitting to the government. And again, there's no specific types of government laid out anywhere in this book. It says submit to whichever government you are under. And not only to submit, but to fear or to have reverence and to honor them. And that may be more challenging at some times than others. I thought Lenski put it well. He said this, the things that are Caesar's include not only tribute, but likewise fear and honor. Whether a government makes this easy or hard for us makes no difference. Our duty is plain. Let the rulers look well to theirs and recognize that also they are answerable to God who likewise rules over them. So here's the thing. We may not approve of every action that our government makes, right? And we don't have to approve of it. But we are to submit to the laws that apply to us. God's government can do whatever it wants to do, right? Sub-rulers can steward that responsibility in any way that they choose. They can take the land that we're in, that we're on right now. They could take this building. They could take the leaders of the church, throw them in jail, right? They can fine us, take our money, take our possessions. And what do you think God would say if we came to him and said, but Lord, don't you care about us? What about our rights? What about our possessions? What about our money? What about our church building and our land? What about all this stuff? And do you want to know what God says? And I say says because he's still saying it through his inspired word. He says this. He says, render to Caesar what's Caesar's and render to God what's God's. Now there's still two more points to go. Point number three is this, and we'll try to hurry through these. 
Our primary and greatest allegiance is to God. Guys, if you get one thing tonight, I do want to point out this. Our primary and greatest allegiance is to God. And here's the scenario. You've got a commitment to the government and you've got a commitment to God. And then the two of them conflict. One is asking you to do one thing. Another is asking you to do another. What do you do? Well, here's what we do is we don't submit to and worship the leaders of human governments, right? Why? Because we submit to the higher authority. If they come in contradiction, we submit to the higher authority. In other words, J.C. Rouse said it this way, if Caesar coins a new gospel, he's not to be obeyed, right? As soon as a system or a leader begin to contradict God and his word and ask us to submit to it, that is where we take a stand. Where Caesar claims what is God's, the claims of God have priority. Therefore, we must hold... We must hold firm to the fact that Caesar's not Lord, the president is not Lord, no system is Lord, but Jesus Christ alone is Lord. Jesus Christ is our ultimate authority. He is our ultimate king, our ultimate ruler, and we submit to him first and foremost. Friends, keep that in mind. In the midst of all this stuff going on, we submit to Jesus Christ as king. Now, yes, he asks us to submit to the government so long as it doesn't contradict submitting to him. We give glory to him by submitting to the government as model citizens, so long as it doesn't contradict our submission to him. And I just have to share this wonderful example with you. Oh, we're doing okay. Acts chapter 5. If you want to turn there, go there, because it's good. Uh, The apostles had been in prison. They'd been beaten. They'd been commanded not to preach Jesus anymore. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 27 says, when they had brought them, speaking of the apostles, they stood them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, verse 28, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. Which name? The name of Jesus. Not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And here we go, verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. He said, we must obey God rather than men. Friends, here's the two ways where this contradiction contradiction might come to bear. Number one, when they ask you to do something that you cannot do. And number two, when they ask you to stop doing something that you are compelled to do by Jesus Christ our Lord. Those are the two scenarios. And now here's the the caution I want to give. We've got to say this little caveat. Do not use this as a license to evade taxes, right? Do not use this as a license to be a criminal. In the name of Jesus, please don't do that, right? Please don't do that. Do not use this as a license to look for areas to disobey the government. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about very clear examples of when they ask you to do something that you cannot do under his authority or to stop doing something that you are compelled to do. That's it. So, our ultimate and greatest allegiance is to God. Point number four, God's kingdom is not dependent on human government. Guys, God's kingdom is not dependent on any (laughs) tiny little human establishment, whether it's a political system, a government, a judicial system, a little country. Think about it. The nations are a drop in a bucket. They are a drop to God. Do you think he's impacted by this? or he's affected, or he's shaking. Oh man, what am I going to do? The politics in America are off the wall. No, that is not what God is doing. He is in complete control of every scenario. His kingdom is not dependent on any human government. There's nothing that Caesar, or any dictator, or any communist country, or any president can do in order to thwart what God is doing in his kingdom. God is building his church. Jesus is building his church. Nothing is going to stop that. And I just want to think about this for a moment. God uses human governments to accomplish his very intentional purposes. And think, think with me for a moment. In the midst of the oppressive Roman government, oppressive Roman government, AD 70, right? They come in and wipe out the whole city of Jerusalem, the temple, and kill millions. Very oppressive. Think about how God used this government for his glory. Here's one observation. Uh, The gospel was able to be spread through all of Asia Minor and Southern Europe through through the Roman roads, right? Paul was able to make all these trips and the gospel just spread like wildfire. Why? Because the Romans had a wonderful road system in place. Thanks, right? 
Or think about this. Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross. And, and we might have to kind of ponder that for a moment. But salvation was made available, in a sense, through a people group who killed Jesus by their way of execution. It's a Roman form of execution. And yet the cross would be referred to 27 times in the New Testament. I just wonder if that wasn't a symbol and a sign of God signifying, hey, this is going to be for everyone. Right? I'm going to use the Roman means of crucifixion to crucify the Savior, who's going to be the Savior to the Jews and the Gentiles, any who would believe, including Romans. Think about this. The letter to the Romans, had Rome not subjugated Israel, I wonder if Paul would have even written the letter of Romans. And think about the wonderful truths that are packed into that 16-chapter letter. Think about how many people have been saved through the letter to the Romans, Right? Because Paul was uncertain about where they were at. So he just lays out the whole gospel systematically. God can use governments for his own glory. And he does. He does. So here's the takeaway, friends, in closing. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. And friends, I just want to encourage you with this before we pray. Governments can do whatever they want to do. It doesn't matter who's in the Oval Office, whether it's blue or red, elephants or donkeys, right? Whoever's in the Oval Office, it will not stop the work of God. In light of the election, be encouraged. God is not mocked. He is at work to glorify himself. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's bow and pray. Father, thank you that your word is abundantly clear to address all matters of life and godliness, Lord. It doesn't leave us uh, hanging and questioning uh, what we ought to do or how we ought to respond in scenarios. Lord, it is sufficient for all, uh, all aspects of life. Lord, I want to pray for us, Lord, two aspects for us. Uh, one, God, that we would embrace this, that we would embrace full submission, uh, Lord, to the government that you have placed over us, knowing that it's come from you, that the leadership has come from you, Lord, knowing that really uh, compared to other nations, we are still abundantly privileged, God. Father, we thank you even for the act of mercy in prolonging perhaps uh, some, some persecution that is coming. Lord, you ask us to pray for this in 1 Timothy 2, to pray for a peaceful and quiet life, to pray for our authorities that we may live a peaceful and quiet life. Lord, we want to just keep doing what we're doing. We're excited about ministry. We're excited about the fact that we can gather here on a Thursday uh, with freedom, that we can share the gospel on campus and at work with freedom. Lord, that the church uh, gets the privilege of uh, being a nonprofit organization. Lord, we pray that these things would continue. Lord, we know persecution uh, may come, but we pray that you would prolong it, that ministry might continue, that you might save more, God, that you would bring more to yourself. That's what we want, Lord. We just want to serve you and use the liberties you've given us for your glory. But Lord, secondly, on my heart, Lord, is just praying for those who don't even know you. Lord, who don't even know uh, the truth of Jesus Christ, who don't know you personally through him. God, if their hope is in politics or their hope is in something of this world, I just pray, God, that you would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel, that you would stir their hearts to come to you, Lord, to receive uh, forgiveness of sins and lasting joy. God, knowing Christ intimately, Lord, we pray for them and pray that uh, their hope would be an eternal one, one that is in something that is lasting, an eternal king, an eternal kingdom. And Lord, the only perfect government is going to be the one where Jesus Christ is reigning his people. Lord, would that be our hope? We pray together in his name. Amen.